each person. Uh, we're going to use this for an activity to kind of help illustrate a point at the end of the message. So when you get your paper and your pen, try to use the pen. If it doesn't work, uh, just holler at whoever has the pens and get them to give you another one. Uh, and if it doesn't work, it's not the end of the world, but it'll be more fun for you if it does. So um, as they're kind of passing that around, I want to just kind of recap uh, what we did last week. And, and I'll, I'll preface it with this this morning. Um, I really appreciate Leah's testimony this morning. As she was speaking, I'm thinking back to the early church and, and the unity that Scripture describes there. And I believe that's because of what's happening in Leah's life too, is that she's listening to the Holy Spirit and sharing with the church what God's speaking into her life. And that's where that unity comes from. And so I really appreciate uh, her being willing to share that. I know it's not easy to do. Last week, uh, we began Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, and spoiler alert, next week's going to be our last message in the book of Hebrews, and I'm not real sure how I feel about that. Um, this has been a really fun study for me, and I hope it's the same is true for you. Um, last week, we saw the, the author of, of Hebrews encouraging the church to remember what it means to be a follower of Christ. The name of that message last week was, was Kingdom Life on Earth, and the whole idea behind that was, what does it look like? To be a believer, to be a follower of Jesus, someone who is pursuing him, what is it that our life will look like? And the author addresses five things. I want to run through those briefly this morning to see those characteristics. And those characteristics, I want to remind us as I, as I share those things, that those are not things that we just work really hard at. Those characteristics are a result of us pursuing the Lord and abiding in Him, that as we are being made more like Him, these are the characteristics that we should see exhibited in our life. And so as we'll read through that list, if there's something on that list that you go, you know, I'm not doing a great job of that, the goal is not for you to work harder to try to become more like that characteristic. The goal is for you to press into Jesus and let Him do that work in your life. So to kind of run through that list again, the first point we made last week was we need to continue to love one another. We talked about how that's not a response. Us loving one another is not a response to how we are loved. But as followers of Jesus, we are to be like him, that we take the lead in loving people well, that we're the ones that pursue others, that we're the ones that are setting the bar, if you will, on what it looks like to love one another. Um, and when, when Christ loves us and loves through us to the people in the world, it's going to look different than just people who are good people. And there's nothing wrong with being a good person, but there's a distinct difference that we see in the world when someone's just being a good person in their own ability versus when the Holy Spirit is working through somebody else's life. You can, you can see that difference. It's tangible. And we need to love one another in a way that honors God and it honors the other person. The second thing we talked about was that we need to show hospitality. Um, and then we talked about how hospitality is not just like how you treat people when they come in your home, but it's how we treat one another. And it's the direct result of love that when you love someone, the natural response to that is hospitality and taking care of others. And again, as we abide, as we're becoming more like Christ, we're going to become more hospitable. Third thing was we need to have sympathy for those that are in trouble. And we talked about specifically how the author of Hebrews most likely was in, the jail, was in jail at the time of this writing. And so his request is not just for himself, but for those that were being persecuted. When you were in jail, your jailers did not provide you with food and water and the things necessary for life. Your friends and your family had to provide those things for you. And so it's not just about taking care of them, but also being bold enough to put yourself in harm's way in order to care for those people. We talked about how if some of the believers from the church were in jail because of their faith, how challenging it would be 
for other people who share that same faith to then go into the jail purposefully to care for others that are being jailed for the very thing that they are doing. So that was a big deal. The fourth thing was we talked about maintaining our purity and how God has given us spousal relationships and we need to honor our spouses and how vital that is to the health of the church. And then the fifth thing was being content with what God's blessed you with. We see in scripture how God clearly takes care of the needs of his people. But when we try to take control of our own needs, our focus shifts from the person of Christ to what we need. And when we let God be the one that provides for our needs, our focus can stay on him and he takes care of us. When we allow the Holy Spirit to leave us, these five attributes that we talked about last week become a natural part of who we are. We're not working hard for those things. It's not like we did a really hard task and now we can say, look at me, I'm a good person now because I've exhibited these characteristics. These characteristics are the natural response of being in an abiding relationship with Jesus. In this next section, the author, or in that section, the author handles specifically physical attributes of our life. And in the next section, we're going to see that focus shift more to the spiritual aspects of our lives. And what we're going to learn today is the foundation for all that we discussed last week. And it's going to be the motivation that we all need to, to pursue the Lord in a way that those characteristics can be worked out in our lives. And I want to remind us again, the temptation that the church was facing to return to dead religion, to return back to Judaism in order to be accepted back into their families. We're going to see how significant that is in our scripture today to what the author is, is warning them about. So look at this with me this morning, and let's look at the author's kind of their final word in comparing the grace of Jesus with the law. Look at Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to read verses 7 through 16, and then we'll, we'll work through those. Verse 7 says, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you. As you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Don't be led astray by various kinds of strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations, since those who observe them have not uh, benefited. We have an altar from which those who worship at the tabernacle do not have a right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go to him outside the camp bearing his disgrace. For we do not have any enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise. That is the fruit of lips that confess his name. Boy, that sounds familiar, doesn't it? Verse 16, don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. So before we dive into this, I just want to say, when I first read that early this week, that's a, that's a lot. And it seems like it's just kind of hopping all over the place. And so this morning, we're going to kind of take our time and, and break this down. And we're going to see how all of these statements that the author is making are interconnected with one another. And I want to start out by saying that first verse made me real nervous when it says, um, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you and carefully observe the outcome of their lives and imitate their faith. I just want to be right up front with you guys is I don't feel like I'm the guy to imitate, okay? I've shared with you guys the last couple of weeks some sin that God's been revealing in my life and how he's dealt with that. But as you dig into this, we're about to see that that's not what he's saying. There's a couple of key phrases. We're going to get to those in a minute, but I want to tell you a story first. I want to tell you about a man in my life that was significant 
in my life as an early uh, young man. Many, many years ago, I was, many years ago, I was in, I think, the fifth grade. And my family changed churches. And the pastor at that time was a guy named Jimmy Piles. He was an older gentleman who had grandkids that were my age. He was significantly older than I was, obviously. And it wasn't long after my family started attending church there that on a Sunday morning, um, he shared the gospel and gave an opportunity for what we would call an altar call, for you to come down, talk with the pastor, pray and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. And I knew in that moment, and I may have shared that story with you guys before, but I knew in that moment that God was calling me. And I'm sitting there next to Eddie, who's my cousin slash best friend and my partner in crime. And I bumped him. I was like, hey, we should go do that. And he's like, uh-uh, I'm not getting up. We're going to get in trouble. And I was like, oh, it's worth it. So I got up because I was an idiot, um, but I was fighting that, that urge to not get a thump from the back of my dad, you know, the back of the head. But I went down and I gave my life to Christ and it changed who I was. Fast forward a couple of years and I, I became the age that you go through confirmation, confirmation, which in the Methodist church is kind of a class on what it means to be saved, what it means to be a believer in Jesus, what that looks like, how the church operates, all those kinds of things. And it was during that time that I really got to know Brother Jimmy. He was the pastor. He's the one that taught that class. And I began to realize how much he truly loved people and specifically how much he loved me. He was the kind of person that, that made you feel seen. Do y'all know anybody? There's some people in this church that are this way. That when you're talking to them, it's like they're looking at your soul and it's a little unnerving because the, the depth of their, their stare. He was one of those guys, but it was... It was because he was, felt like a grandpa to me, like it was a really good thing. There was genuine care and love that flowed out of him. Over the years, our families became really good friends. Um, we even went on vacation together a couple of times. I mean, we were, we were really tight. As, as many do, he eventually retires, and I didn't see him very much after that. Years later, uh, I, I, turned, I learned that he had passed away. And so my family and I went to his funeral. It was one of the largest churches in the area where he was living. Um, big, big church, much bigger than this one. And we got there, there was standing room only. And as the funeral service um, proceeded, there was story after story after story, not just in the service, but from people that were just milling around talking about all the things that Brother Jimmy had done in their life and how much they loved him and how much he loved the Lord. It was kind of one of those moments, I don't know if you've experienced this before when you've been around those kind of conversations about somebody and you feel really motivated and you're like, man, I want to be a person like that. I want one day when I die, I know that's morbid, when I die, I want people to feel about me the way they felt about Brother Jimmy. I share that story with you today because I want us to see that that's what the author of Hebrews is pointing to. He tells the church, look at this again in verse 7, he says, remember your leaders who have spoken God's word to you as you carefully observe the outcome of their lives, imitate their faith. Point number one for today is that we need to learn from someone that has loved you and Jesus well. In this verse, there's some specific language that's used, and I think it's of uh, particular importance as you're looking at this passage. The, the two words he says are to carefully observe, that's number one, the outcome of their lives, number two. These first two words that I, that I want us to consider, the first of these is the word outcome. This language is communicating that we are to remember someone that has both come before us and also who has completed their journey as they've joined Christ in heaven. When you look at that word in the Greek, that's what it's referring to as someone that has already passed, okay? So he's asking, the author is asking them to remember specifically those who founded that church. He says, remember those that brought the gospel to you 
and then do what they did. And we're going to talk specifically in a little while later in the message about what that means. But, but basically it means love people well and share the gospel with them. And this isn't a recommendation to repeat the same old stuff, but to look at the heart behind what they were choosing to do. He's saying to carefully observe their lives so that we can see why they lived the way they did so that we can learn from the way that they lived. The intent here is that the outcome of our lives would be very similar to theirs. In learning from them, we can become a person who loves Jesus and loves people. The author makes a statement in verse 8 that may seem out of place, but look at this with me again, because it seems like he kind of jumps to another train of thought, but he's not. Look at verse 8. It says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So he's saying, look at the, the people in your life who've come before you and imitate their faith. And then he says, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. As they're looking back at their own conversion experiences, they're thinking about when this church was formed, they remember He's asking them to remember Jesus and how much joy and freedom and excitement they felt when they heard the gospel, when they realized that this promised Messiah was the person of Jesus and that their sins were forgiven and were taken care of. That's the same thing that we ought to do when we're thinking about our own faith is to remember often the moment of our conversion and to remember the people that were involved in that and how much they loved us. It's to our benefit to look back and remember all the emotions and the freedom that we experienced and when we understood the beauty of what Jesus had done. It's good to remember the people that poured into us so that we can understand the love of Jesus and to look at their lives and learn from how they loved. What's not good is to look back at that time and try to make that a blueprint for today. The things of old are exactly that. They're old. They're done. God wants, us to do, God wants to do something new and fresh in our lives every day. The church in Rome... We're facing a similar temptation to just repeat the traditions of the past instead of pursuing God for what they wanted today. Again, I keep reminding us this of every week, that there was a temptation for the, the church to, to walk away from Jesus and go back to their faith in Judaism. And the author brings that up again today. Look at verse 9 through 13. He says, don't be led astray by various kinds of strange thinkings. For it is good for the heart to be established by grace and not by food regulations. Since those who observe them have not benefited. We have an altar from, those, from which those who worship at the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought back into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go outside the camp bearing his disgrace. Point number two. An active relationship with Jesus is better than dead religion. I think we all probably have a pretty good grasp on that. And I want to clarify what, how the author is saying that today. Once again, we see the church, their Jewish relatives are trying to bring them back into their fold. There was a Jew Jewish festival that was laid out by God while Israel was still in the wilderness after they built their tabernacle. And it was known as Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is still a thing that Jewish people celebrate today. Yom Kippur is the day of atonement. It was the yearly sacrifice of a bull and a goat for the atonement of sins, for the forgiveness of sins. And a part of that celebration was a big meal. And it was um, in, this, in this meal or in this ceremony, it was required that a bull and a goat, every year they take them into the temple and they, this is kind of graphic, but they drain the blood, right? They drain all the blood from the animal and the, and the blood goes into the Holy of Holies and it's used for the sacrifice of atonement. And then the rest of the animals, the carcass, was taken outside 
the city outside the gate and it was burned there, okay? You see the parallel with Jesus, how his blood was poured out for us and then he was taken outside the city and his body was crucified there. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in a second. This feast that was held at Yom Kippur was widely believed to give the participants something supernatural as they ate. Listen to this from a commentary I read this week. It says, these teachings evidently promised spiritual strengthening through ceremonial foods found apart from God's grace in Christ. It said, every meal offered faithful Jews the opportunity to reflect on God's goodness and thus be nourished spiritually. It reminded them that the ultimate expression of thanks to God for redemption must be made via the thank offering and the fellowship meal at the altar in Jerusalem. That sounds all well and good, but the problem is that it wasn't necessary anymore. You see, the Jewish people were seeing the church and they were seeing how they gathered together regularly and they shared a meal and they shared the Lord's Supper and they went, oh, that's just like Yom Kippur. Hey, y'all come do the Yom Kippur with us and we'll all be happy together again. The problem is, is that to go back and celebrate the Day of Atonement would to be to negate all that Jesus had done. It would to go back to the old ways and say, I know that Jesus died, but instead of celebrating that, I'm going to go back and we're going to sacrifice a bull and a goat and hope that that brings atonement for our sins. Yom Kippur was originally inten- intended and instituted by God to point forward to what Christ would do. And rather than moving forward with what God had done in our life, there was this temptation to go back to the old ways of doing things, the old traditions, for the sake of comfort. The author addresses that directly in verse 11 and 13. He says, For the body of the animals whose blood is brought into the most holy place by the high priest as a sin offering are burned outside the camp. Therefore Jesus also suffered outside the gate so that he might sanctify the people by his own blood. Let us then go outside the camp bearing his disgrace. This invitation to Yom Kippur was an invitation to reject Jesus' sacrifice and to go back under the rule of the law. Jesus became the sacrifice that was required only once. The attempt that was being made was to liken the fellowship of the church with that of Yom Kippur. And they're not the same thing. One celebrates a yearly sacrifice that's required to be repeated, and the other is a celebration of a final sacrifice that never needs to be repeated. And there's danger in that for us today. There's a trap that the church falls into on a regular basis that we have to be aware of. It'd be so easy for somebody to take something that isn't inherently bad and call it Jesus and then sell it to the churches. This happens in church culture all the time. And I'll give you a good example and you're going to go, oh yeah, I see that. Often, a church will start a program, something that is ordained by God, and they'll, they'll do this event, and it will have great success and results because they're walking in obedience to what God's telling them to do. And other churches see that success and say, I want that success in the life of our church. Therefore, let's take their blueprint and let's do it here, and we'll have the same results. The problem is, is that God may not have spoken that. They're trying to take what God did somewhere else and copy that into their own body. And God's way more creative than that. He would much rather we go to him and say, God, here's the needs in our community. How do we meet those needs? And then let him speak to that. There's this constant pull in our culture to return to dead religion, to follow a trend or a popular church and copy what that church is doing just so they can look successful. And I want you to hear me say this. Anytime we try to do something for God that isn't initiated by God, it's dead religion. If 
we try to do something for God that's not initiated by God, that's dead religion. It's us trying to do something in our own power. The celebration that the Jewish people were, were having was originally initiated God as a call to repentance. But instead, they made it uh, um, the, the ceremony itself. They made that their God. Little g. You see the problem with that? God intended for that Yom Kippur to be a eureka moment for the people. That their whole history, they're celebrating the sacrifice of atonement where the blood was brought into the Holy of Holies and the body was taken outside the city. And the idea was that there would be this eureka moment where the light bulb would come on that when Jesus is beaten inside the city, crown of thorns placed on his head, he's bleeding, his blood's running out of him, and they carry him outside and they sacrifice him. It was to be the light bulb moment where people go, oh, I see what God just did. He just used the Messiah to make atonement for my sins. This is what, what's happening in the life of the church right now. Is these religious leaders made this activity of Yom Kippur their God and ignored the activity that God was actually doing. And this is what happens when well-meaning people try to do something for God instead of joining God in what he's doing. We talked about this a lot last week, but it comes back to abiding. Jesus did only what the Father told him to do. So why would the church do anything different than that? If that's the standard that said, if Jesus said, I do nothing on my own, but I only do what the Father says, why would we try to go outside of that? If it was good enough for him, why is it not good enough for us? Here's the ironic part. Because I guarantee you, if you ask anyone who, to use that same example, who co copies another church's program, if you ask them what their intent was, they would tell you that they want their people and their community <clears throat> excuse me, to experience God. That's their goal. When we're trying to do something for God, we get exhausted, and God's not impressed by that. But if you ask anyone who is busy in dead religious activity what they're attempting to do, they're going to tell you that they're trying to make God happy with themselves. That's their goal. If your goal is to please God, then do what He's already asked you to do. Abide in Him. That's point number two. If you want to please God, abide in Him. You know what's difficult for a lot of people when we talk about abiding? Is that it doesn't look like what everybody else is doing. Let's be honest. The vast majority of us don't want to be the one who's going against the flow. We don't want to be the one that's standing outside of what everybody else is doing. A great example of this is how we minister in this community. I shared with you guys a while back, but we had a, a pastor's meeting here at our church that I hosted. Um, and before that event, the guy that was leading that event came early and we met and he's like, man, this is a fantastic facility. And I was like, are your eyes broken? <laughs> but it's, he said, can you take me on a tour? I was like, yeah, sure. And so we walked this building and we went outside and looked at the gym. And, I, and as we're doing that, he's asking questions. And I'm sharing about how we minister in this community. And his response was, man, I don't see anybody else who's doing ministry the way that you guys are. And he meant that as a compliment. And I took it as one. But what he was really saying was that what we're doing here is unique. And you guys all know that we're not doing it this way because we think it's the best way or because we were really creative and came up with a program that fit our resources here. We do it the way we do it because that's the way God spoke in it. And I think that that's the way it ought to be. I think if you go to any church and you look at what they're doing, if they're following Jesus, you're going to go, man, this is really cool. The temptation is for us to try to copy that. But that's not what God's called us to do. 
Our ministry here doesn't look different because our goal is to be different. Our ministry here looks the way it does because that's what God's told us to do it. Just like to point out what Leah shared with us this morning is not normal in church culture. For somebody who's in leadership to say, hey, look, this is what God's saying. I'm going to take a step back and we're going to trust that God's going to handle it. Normally all that stuff's handled behind the scenes and the church doesn't really know what's going on. The reality is that what believers really want is to know God. We're drawn to Him. And the only way to do that is to abide. When we're doing that, if we receive ridicule for pursuing God and doing what He says, we need to understand that we're not alone. Verse 13 says, Let us then go to Him outside the camp, bearing His disgrace. That as we follow Jesus, if there is disgrace there, He's bearing it with us too. We're not doing that on our own. When we join Jesus in what He's doing, people are going to look at us the same way they, live, they looked at Jesus. And if that's with negativity, negativity, you're not alone. The one that you're following is right there with you. And also understand, He goes on to say, that if it's uncomfortable now, it's not going to always be that way. Look at verse 14 through 16. He says, For we do not have an enduring city here. Instead, we seek the one to come. Therefore, through him, let us continually offer up to God a sacrifice of praise, that is, the fruit of lips that confess his name. Don't neglect to do what is good and to share, for God is pleased with such sacrifices. Church, I know that all of us, our heart is to be pleasing to God. That's what we want. The people that the author of Hebrews is writing to very much want that same thing. And here's how we accomplish that. We talked about it last week. We love other people the way that Jesus did. We abide in Him. We do the things that He did. Jesus loved us by abiding in the Father and responding to what the Father told Him to do in our lives. If we're going to share our stories, if we're going to share the gospel, if we're going to love people around us, we have to learn to abide. Day by day, moment by moment. And abiding is unnatural to us when we first learn about it. I want, us to, I want everybody, let's just get on the same page about that. When you first start learning about abiding, it's different. It's kind of weird because our whole lives, we have been the ones to make the decisions. We have been the one who stack the pros and the cons and make a decision on what's going to be best for us or for our families. And when we learn to abide, all of a sudden, all of that responsibility is getting put on Jesus. And we don't get to make the pros and cons list anymore. We just get to say, God, is it a yes or is it a no? And then we follow what he says to do. But once we've come to know Jesus, our lives begin to change. And this newfound desire to know God and to please Him springs up in us. But we have to learn how to do that. I, this morning, you got your paper and your pens at work? Everybody get it out. We're going to do a little activity real quick. Because I want it to help us understand how we learn to abide, okay? Here's what I'm going to do. I want you to write the following sentence as I read it aloud, okay? You can write in print, script, whatever is your preference, Okay, but I want you to write it with the same speed as if you were taking notes in class. If you've never taken notes in class, my kids, you may or may not have done that. Some of the others in here, um, McKay kids, you're writing at the same speed that I'm speaking or as close to it as you possibly can. Okay, so your focus is just on copying down what I'm saying. Is everybody ready? Okay, also, while you're doing this, don't cross any T's or dot any I's. Okay, ready? Here we go. Here we go. Ten different times I told you to stop that. Ten different times I told you to stop that. 
One more time. Ten different times I told you to stop that. Okay, when you're done, look up at me. All right, raise your hand if you didn't make any mistakes. If you didn't make any mistakes, raise your hand. All right, nobody. Okay, here we go. All right, we're going to do it again, okay? Same thing. We're going to do it again. Let's see what happens. You all ready? Again, don't cross any T's or dot any I's. Ten Indians tried to tie ten tents together. Ten Indians tried to tie ten tents together. Ten Indians tried to tie ten tents together. Boy, I hope this works. It's going to be awkward if it doesn't. All right, raise your hand if you didn't make any mistakes. Yes! All right. Capitalize doesn't matter. Raise your hand if you didn't make any mistakes. Didn't make any mistakes. Raise them high, man. Be proud. Come on. You did good. You worked hard. All right, we got some people in here. Good job. Y'all give them a round of applause. Here's the point. What's the difference between the first and the second time? You practiced? Yeah, you did it the first time. You didn't. Okay. And you focused. You focused. If we want to learn to abide in Christ day by day, moment by moment, all we got to do is focus. We prepare ourselves. We get our minds in the right place. And it's not about us working hard. It's not about us doing a bunch of stuff. It's about starting every day with focus and saying, God, today is your day. As I open up your word, I want you to speak into my life and I want to hear you. And as I move through my day, teach me to be observant to what you're doing around me. Show me those things. And if we can do that on a regular basis and we can learn to focus, all of a sudden we're going to see more of God than we've ever seen before in our lives. Not because we're trying hard, but because we've asked Him to do that. And we just focused. When our abiding will become more natural and we will experience God more as we learn to do it. What used to be unnatural will become natural. Through making a daily focused effort to abide, we're going to not only, not only going to begin to feel normal, but to not abide is going to be what feels weird when we stay, make a decision outside of God's direction. If you look back over the course of your life, you think about the time and energy that you have spent in trying to do something for God through works, you're going to see the futility of what now you understand through grace. God doesn't want all that. Our goal, our hearts, church, is to be pleasing to God. And the only thing He asks us to do is to be in the relationship that He created us to be in. And He's done everything on His behalf. Everything that needs to be done. All we've got to do is ask Him to make it possible in our lives. It's just to receive it. When you wake up in the morning, start your day with focus and say, God, I want to hear from you today. I want to see what you're doing. I want to hear what you're saying. I want to be a part of what you want me to be a part of. And then watch what happens as the Holy Spirit begins to work in your life in ways that you didn't know was possible. What if we put that same amount of energy that we used to put in trying to please God through our works, if we just put half of it into just being focused? Rather than us fumbling around trying to discover what will please God and never really knowing, let's put that energy into pursuing the Lord on a daily basis and asking Him to teach us to hear His voice and to see his activity. 
Jesus came to free us from the burden of law. He came to free us from the need to try to do stuff. So author's writing this, this, this letter, really, to the church in Rome. He's saying, y'all know this already. But let me remind you of all the things that you believe. So that if there's any doubt, you can see for, for a fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And now that you have seen that, pursue Him. All the things we talked about last week and all the things we talked about today are not the result of us working really hard. All of those things are a result of us simply being in the relationship with God the way He intended. At the gathering place, we call that abiding. If we're going to live under the new covenant, I suggest we enjoy the benefits of it and quit trying to live in the old covenant and fulfill the law on our own behalf. Let's enjoy the freedom that comes with the grace of Jesus and just be His. Give our lives to Him and let Him do with Him what He will. Let's walk with God and join Him in what He's doing. Let's pray. Jesus, I'm personally so thankful for the work that You've done this week in my life and the lives of people that have shared with me this week. God, help us to see that that our desire to please you can be as simple as just abiding. We don't have to go and do a bunch of stuff, but just say yes to what you're doing. God, I ask that this week that as we spend time focusing on you, that you would help us to experience the freedom and the peace that comes from just being yours and not feeling all this external pressure to try to be somebody or look a certain way or do certain things. Father, we can find peace and rest and enjoyment in just being yours and that being enough for us and for you. God, reveal yourself to us this week as we purposely focus in on you and pursue you every day. Jesus, we ask these things in your name. Amen.